Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. Jeez, this is going to be a rough one. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. Jeez, this is going to be a rough one. Uh, (laughs) So we, uh, sorry, I'm uh, coming off of a cold, everybody. Uh, But today we have a big day. Bender and I are here, as uh, you would expect. Uh, But we have uh, retired Lieutenant General uh, Jodis and his son, Brian Jodis. Uh, But before we get to them, we're going to talk a little admin. So uh, overall, Thank you, everybody, for listening and uh, sharing the podcast, liking the podcast, giving us five stars. Donations are always open, and they're always appreciated. Uh, So thank you to our sponsors and everybody that has donated. And please reach out to us if you want to donate or learn how to sponsor an episode. Um, One additional thing, the Kodiak Shack podcast is going to turn into a bi-weekly podcast uh, because i got a lot of stuff going on, too many irons in the fire. Uh, So it's going to be every other week. Uh, But other than that, we are uh, should be as standard aside from that. So uh, Lieutenant General Retired Jodis, uh, sir, thank you for being here. Tell us about yourself. It's not a trap. All right. Hey, Vader and uh, Bender, thanks uh, for having me on. And uh, great to see our uh, our oldest son, Brian, here on the on the screen, too. It's uh, my honor and privilege uh, to be with you. And he told me about you guys, and I listened to the podcast that he was on. I just love the name, Kodiak Shack. I mean, how shit hot is that? <laughs> you know, right? Shack. And then uh, he, uh, you guys told the story a little bit about how you got the name and everything. But uh, again, honor and privilege. Yeah, 36 and a half years in the United States Air Force. Air Force ROTC, graduated college in 1976. Um, retired coming up on 10 years already, uh, retired in the summer of 13. My official retirement date is one July of, uh, of 2013. Uh, my wife and I live in Hanover, Pennsylvania. I'm not there right now. I'm, uh, at his, uh, middle brother's house in Seattle, Washington, as, uh, we're taking care of our just turned one year old yesterday, grandson. He's the youngest of the seven, and uh, and our son Ralph and his wife Christina and their daughter Remy, who's going to be six on next Sunday, they're on the way to Disneyland, you know, so they're officially going to Disneyland. So we're here uh, doing the grandparent thing, which is just awesome. Yeah, that's great. And uh, so airplanes-wise, uh, F-111, Strike Eagle, T-38, uh, you flew, and then uh, helicopter, I think I saw on your bio as well. That's right. Uh, yeah, it started out in the F-111E, AE, uh, A during the RTU, E over at uh, RAF Upper Hayford in the UK. Uh, went back to teaching pilot training at Columbus Air Force Base in the, in the T-38. And uh, then uh, got into the F-15E Strike Eagle when it was a new airplane. I wasn't in the initial cadre, but started up the third operational uh, F-15E squadron at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in Goldsboro, North Carolina, the 334th Fighting Eagles. Um, and uh, a lot of time in the Strike Eagle. And then when I was the commander of the Air Force District of Washington, when I was a two-star, I was very fortunate that I could do what was called indoctrination flying. And for some weird military rule, I, could, I couldn't fly more than 24 times a year. And I couldn't be qualified in the airplane. But we have uh, UH-1 helicopters there. And what many people probably don't know is the largest heli squadron 
in the United States Air Force is the first heli squadron there at Andrews Air Force Base. And those airplanes, those, those uh, UH-1s, uh, those Hueys, are used for um, contingency uh, response and consequence management. And so I needed to know what their mission was and what they could possibly do if, in fact, something bad happened in the district and I wind up and I would have wound up being the Joint Air Force Component Commander or the CFAC or the J, the JFAC or something like that. So and that was a lot of fun because this stuff in a in an airplane, right, as we know, or you guys, you know, with the side, the, the side stick ain't the same as this stuff, you know, in a cyclic and a collective in a helicopter. Um, I came back from uh, like my second or third mission, you know, learning how to fly the airplane. And I said to my wife, I've never worked so hard at trying to make an airplane do nothing, you know, and trying to figure out how to, how to hover that thing and, and stuff. But yeah, so uh, all total uh, over 3,500 flight hours, a um, little bit of combat time and uh, in, in all four of those airplanes. I think I went over about 25 hours in the Huey, so. Well, and then one of the things I saw was, because uh, you had two deployments, I think. One of them was uh, just after Desert Storm, and then one was Southern Watch. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, when Desert Storm uh, kicked off in January 91, uh, we were no kidding, had just r literally a, a week, two weeks before that, had just opened up the squadron doors of the 334th Fighter Squadron. And uh, we literally had like three airplanes. Um, and so we started getting guys mission ready and that kind of thing. And, um, and, and so that June of 91, we deployed after Desert Storm had ended and we went to Dahran and, uh, the guys that were there from the Seymour Johnson, the 336 fighter squadron, they were the first ones. And then the 335th, 336 was Rocketeers, 335th was the Chiefs. They both fought in Desert Storm. Uh, the Rockets came home first and then part of the Chiefs. And then we went over in the uh, middle of June of 91 and uh, to Dahran and the, and the Chiefs had just moved up to Dahran. And we basically started the flying operation there in Dahran. At that time, there was still a no-fly zone over Kuwait. And so we were doing that. <clears throat> Stayed there for three months. And then I went back in... Uh, uh, fall of 95, when I was a squadron commander, when I went with the 334th and 91, I was a flight commander. And then when I went back in uh, September of 95, I was, uh, I was a flight commander. I mean, I'm sorry, I was a squadron commander of the 335th fighter squadron of the Chiefs, and we were there for three months. And then, and then we were flying over Iraq um, as part of Operation Southern Launch. And then how did that kind of mission sets, ops tempo, like, was it, was it pretty busy or was it kind of just kind of peacekeeping stuff for, uh, for most of that? Yeah. Well, you know, go, first go, go back to, uh, uh, right after desert storm at that time, you know, the oil fires were still burning in Kuwait, you know, and so we're flying over Kuwait and that was kind of interesting at times when we'd have a contact and we'd have to go flying down, you know, not into an oil fire, but through that crap, you know, and get all over the airplane and, it's probably why I can't give blood anymore. Well, that besides and living in the UK, mad cow disease. Uh, but um, so we, so that was more just initially in Kuwait in uh, in '91. That was more just kind of boring holes in the sky. And since we were all nighttime, we were nighttime guys. We flew probably 
75% of our missions in the middle of the night, which is fine. Uh, one of the cool things I got to do there, a little side story, is I got to brief uh, General Schwarzkopf on his last round coming through uh, through Kuwait because uh, there was concern that, that Saddam was going to try to do something and they, my uh, squadron commander, uh, then Lieutenant Colonel Mike Deloney, smiley, said, Dice, you're in charge of the MPC. And there was a guy on the aircraft carrier, a Navy guy, he was in charge of their MPC. And, and they were like, build a plan if we got to go do something. I mean, this was no kidding, yellow legal pads and stubby pencils. Uh, we, we didn't have any, really much of anything. It's just a, what, what we had. And so we put together like a three night, I don't remember how many target uh, strike packages to go on in there. And then one day they go, oh, General Schwarzkopf is coming by on his farewell tour. You're briefing him. And me and this, me and this Navy lieutenant commander, you know, 204s wind up briefing him. It was, it was, it was pretty cool. And, and, this, and it was the classic when E.F. Hutton Speaks. You guys might not remember those commercials, but when E.F. Hutton Speaks, people listen. And he would start to talk. And no kidding, all the entourage around him would literally just lean in to hear what he was going to say. But uh, so anyway, and then but then we went back for desert. Uh, we went back for uh, Southern Watch. Then we were flying over Kuwait, and of course, uh, uh, that both times those were considered combat times. Nobody ever shot at me. I never dropped a bomb in anger. I never shot at anybody. But we were just enforcing that no-fly zone over Iraq uh, at the time. And and then again, we still flew a lot of night stuff. Well, and that kind of so I have a two-part question. We'll get to the second part in a bit, uh, but. So initially, you're a captain, then a major, and you're, you're leading squadrons. You're, you're on the very end of the tactical side of things. You are actually executing your MPC, your mission planning cell. You're also executing these, or you're attempting to if it comes down to it. Uh, but then later in your career, you're the guy making the decisions because you become the CFAC in NATO, right? So, uh, so now we'll kind of get to being the CFAC and how your perspective changed. But when you were still the major doing those things, did you kind of understand the bigger picture and the broader perspective and the impact of the mission planning you were doing, the objectives on the tactical side, even though, you know, you hadn't had that operational or strategic perspective yet? You know, and I'll use that uh, Schwarzkopf uh, briefing as an example, but then I'll also carry forward um, to when I was uh, remote in Korea for a year um, uh, and I was uh, building the pre-ITO, if you guys are familiar with that at all. We can touch on that a little bit. So uh, you're right. That, that was no kidding, pure tactical execution. Um, but in that, uh, and, when I, and when I had done that in... Um, in 91, you know, I had been through uh, Marine Corps Command and Staff College. In fact, I, I graduated in 90, and when I left Marine Corps Command and Staff College, I went to, that's when I went to the Strike Eagle. And so, you know, we had obviously gone through strategy, operational art, the importance of connecting strategy to task and how that flows through operational art and those kind of things. So in, and in that case where I sort of was that MPC chief there um, post desert storm for that, that little bit of time. I, I did have to understand the operational objectives and I did have to understand that operational art and what that strategy might be. I probably didn't appreciate it as much as I, as I did when I was a CFAC now jump forward, you know, a decade and a half or uh, however that might be. And so, 
Um, so I did have, I did have to understand that. And then, you know, when I what so after, so in the summer of 92, I went remote to Korea for a year to Osan and I was in the H, what we call the H tag then. Now it's the 607th AOC, I, I'm pretty sure. And, uh, and I was the interdiction planner and eventually I was in charge of the whole pre-ITO and the pre-ITO is a pre-air tasking order that sits on the shelf if we have to go fight tonight against the North, as those who have been in Korea know, you know, we fight tonight. If the North all of a sudden comes South and there's a shot out of blue, we've got something standing that's there. And so that, uh, and then I was a major Lieutenant Colonel select and I pinned on Lieutenant Colonel there. So yeah, I definitely had to understand the operational and the strategic levels of warfare and how the tactical aspect supported that. And then, uh, so before we get moving in, um, too much farther so brian sorry we've been uh we've just been kind of jumping right into it dude. i'm enjoying it this is great i'm just sitting back and y'all don't need me i'll just be (laughs) but what i also want to get is uh because ben and i are both both dads and we you know we understand that it's it's easy for the warfighter who trains to go to war and trains to go to combat almost every day to just strap on the jet and then get going and go to do the thing but as a as a son as a child of one of those people is that is that apparent to you did you understand in real time or when these things were happening the gravity of the things that your your dad was doing well fall of 95 he missed out on a championship soccer season um, (laughs) and and left the assistant coach to coach us to a championship so I mean look I remember that Korea year pretty vividly I was in the sixth grade Right. So that that's a that's a memorable time of, you know, your dad being gone for basically an entire year. We got to see each other a couple times throughout that year. Uh, One for a spring break trip we made. We went to South Korea and got to spend, I mean, like a week there was awesome. Came back with starter jackets, new baseball gloves, like all this stuff in Korea. (laughs) But like you you remember that, right? Like as a kid, like, you know, like you don't want your dad to leave, you know, to go. But you also are proud because you know what he does and why he's got to go do it. And I'm the oldest of three, and so we probably have, my brothers and I probably have very similar memories and also some varying ones. My youngest brother probably doesn't remember a lot of those things. He was very little at the time. He was the blonde-haired kid who, on that trip to South Korea, he was like five or six, all the Koreans were grabbing him because he had this white blonde hair. They want to take pictures with him. Um, So they probably have varying different memories. I mean, you know, I remember some of those early desert storm days, but again, that was, you know, a little bit further in the front, too, so... You were always proud, right? Always excited for when they came back. We got to go to the flight line and see them when they were coming home and all that sort of stuff. That sixth grade year, I remember, because it's just like, you know, you're a little bit older then. The key to all of it, right? Dad's got to go do his work, right, on behalf of the nation. The key to all of it, and he would tell you the same thing, is who's taking care of business at home, right? You leave a, 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 a more than capable, uh, uh, promoted up spouse, right? So if he was a major at the time, then Colonel Jodas, Judy J was at the house taking care of everything. <laughs> Right. Um, so obviously that's a big, a big part of it. And, you know, that's, as you guys know, as, as fathers, as, as family men, right. If, if the nation calls on you to go to work, right. You've got to trust that the family's at home and, and, and they're able to take care of things there. And like, maybe you guys know this, or you don't. One of the beautiful things about the community that we were in, and I don't know if it's a fighter squadron thing or what my guess is it would be similar in other walks of the air force and the military, but I can only speak from ours is 
you got not just the men in the squadron, you got that squadron around you, right? That's a support system that helps throughout all that. And I remember feeling that when we were kids, right? People always, you always had folks to help. Somebody needed to run you to soccer practice because mom was taking the two other in another direction, right? That unit was always there to take care of us. Yeah, that's awesome. That's that, uh, that helps Bender and I because we, uh, we want to be there to kick down the door too. So yeah, we want to know the the, uh, that the home front will be good. Yeah, Bender, what do you got? Hop uh, in here. Well, I was going to ask, well, I got, I guess, multiple questions. But so uh, when you were in England in the F-111, what, what, where were you at? What base? So uh, that was RAF Upper Hayford. So at the time, we had two uh, bases there that were where we had F-111s. We had the F-111Es at RAF Upper Hayford. We had uh, three ops squadrons, 55th, uh, the 77th and the 79th. I was in the 79th. That was my follow-up um, question. And then uh, at Lake and Heath, yeah. At, yeah, yeah. So it's the same guys, the same squadrons Shaw, that are yeah. at, uh, at Shaw. That was a gambler. So I was. Yeah. my follow-up um, question was, we're, yeah, we're yeah, gonna yeah, the gamblers, yep. The gamblers are Tigers uh, and stuff. And, that, and I think they have the 78th there now too. But, um, and then eventually while I was there, they added the 42nd. Uh, that was when they made the EF-111s, right? Where they took the, the, the bark and they made it the spark bark as we called it, you know, a tactical jammer, escort jam or whatever, or a little bit of standoff jamming. And then Lake and Heath had the, uh, the F-111F models. And what was different there is one, their engines were bigger. And two, they had a paved tack targeting pod on the airplane so they could drop precision guided munitions where, where we couldn't. So I, mean, I think it's cool to kind of, a lot of that is the lineage of what Vader and I did in the, you know, the, the wild weasel F-16 versions, right? Uh, so right. like that, that's probably, that was the first targeting pod, right? That the Air Force ever used that pave, what was it called? The... I, you know what? I don't know. Cause I think, um, and, and I'm not, you know, I, I graduated high school in 73, so I'm not a Vietnam era guys, but there, I think pretty sure we dropped PGMs off of F4s and maybe in some other airplanes in Vietnam, but I don't know if they had a pod or I don't, I, I kind of don't remember that, but I, I, that was sort of, but I think you're right. I think the F models, F-111 Fs. We'll get some old F four guy who's going to come in and go. No, you guys are wrong. Let me tell Probably. you. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, and in fact, uh, you know that when we did El Dorado Canyon against Libya in '86 in April of '86, the bomb droppers from the from the U.S. Air Force came out of RAF Lakenheath, and they specifically wanted them because they were the PGM because they because they could drop PGMs with the pave tack. And the EF-111s came out of Upper Hayford to be able to do the jamming. And then they had some uh, A6s or EA-6Bs, you know, off of carriers um, in the May. Yeah, that's cool. That's awesome. Uh, and then, Brian, I was going to ask, or I just wanted to say that I have blonde children. When we were in Japan, uh, they were always getting nabbed by uh, people who wanted to take pictures. Yeah, it was wild. <laughs> there was one day, it was wild. One day we were at, uh, I think it was Tokyo Disney, but my wife and I wanted to ride one of the rides, so we had our nine-year-old watched the young kids and when we came off the ride uh there was a they had lined up all the japanese visitors basically had lined up in line there's probably 50 of them to take pictures with the kids and they were just very orderly they'd like pick up the kid take a picture and hand it to the next <laughs> it was, it was right. wild oh yeah they're <laughs> yeah, super awesome. nice about it yeah we're we're tour we're touring like the old um because south korea had the you know the olympics so we're touring like the olympic park and he was a hit. Yeah. He was a yeah, huge hit. I should have monetized that. Now, now major in the Space Force. Oh. Now, I don't know if I can say this. I assume I can. Yeah, yeah. Lieutenant Colonel, Lieutenant oh. Colonel Select in the Space Force, too, that little blonde nice. hair boy. So he's done oh, pretty nice. well himself. Good yeah. for him. 
Well, kind of going back to talking about precision guided munitions, I don't think if people haven't watched, you know, the History Channel during daylight at night, it turns into some like alien, you know, ancient alien channel. But during the day, it talks about the importance of some of this military tech. And before we had precision guided munitions, they were what we refer to as dumb bombs. They were bombs that just fell ballistically. You dropped it, and you hope you got close enough. So normally, you just brought a ton of bombs. Uh, but when you really needed to hit something, you needed to be precise, you need that precision guidance bomb. So, I mean, Kuwait specifically, uh, I, uh, Benner and I deployed for our first deployments together, and then we both deployed separately in different squadrons after. Uh, but my second deployment was to Kuwait, and I actually saw the rubble of the hardened shelters that were bomb-proof that Strike Eagles, I believe, put GBU-24s through uh, and destroyed them. And I was like, that's, I mean, that's some good work. And the rubble's still sitting there uh, yeah. not too many years ago. How do you feel like the technology, obviously, the F-111 flying the Strike Eagle, and the Strike Eagle, I mean, especially the upgrades it's gotten over the decades, is uh, it's a relatively advanced you know the f-15 ex is is pretty technologically savvy uh so what would you say is how technology kind of changed the way we fight from a tactical perspective but then from a two-star three-star perspective as well yeah i think from the tactical perspective you know and i got to see that in flying the 111 and then of course getting into strike eagle you know when i flew the 111 uh in the e-model you know there's no hud right the, the INS at the time was um, an analog INS. So it's accelerometers and pulleys and wheels and probably little squirrels running around in there, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, on the top of the dash is a locus, a lead computing optical site. You guys, you guys are HUD babies. You probably don't know how to, one of those things work, right? Nope. You know, yeah. where, you crank, where you crank mills or you offset based on wind and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So, but, you know, in the, and in the 111, the, even in the E-model, you know, we saw, we had technology. We had the terrain-following radar, which, you know, was pretty cool. And, and that that same basic setup is in the F-15E, you know, is in the Strike Eagle today and things. So, um, but then, of course, when I get when I get, do get into the Strike Eagle and it's a brand-new airplane, now you got this huge-ass HUD, right? That's what, I don't remember, 12 inches by 12 inches or whatever it is. It's pretty darn big. Everything projected up on there. You've got the forward-looking infrared that you can use at night. So, um, you know, the terrain following radar is keeping the airplane, you know, at 500 feet above the ground, but that flare lets you see, whereas in the, in the 111, the way you saw was the Wizzo using the attack radar. Um, and he, and he is, we didn't have any females at the time, but he is painting in the 111 in the strike eagle would be honestly, but he is painting a picture telling you come right 10 degrees. There's a little Valley here you can go through and, so the comm was very intensive. Wow. Now you take that same mission at night, and I do that in the Strike Eagle, and it's very quiet because the wizard doesn't need to tell me that because I can see it in my heads-up display. And then eventually, uh, when, I, when I was the option commander at Seymour Johnson from uh, late 99 to early, mid, not quite mid-2001, uh, when we finally got NVGs, night vision goggles, you know, that's another whole different uh, ball game and stuff. So those technology things, I think, uh, from a tactical perspective, obviously allow you to have more situation, you would think, more situation awareness. And I think you do. And then from a perspective of a 
three star, you know, as the CFAC, one of the first few nights of Operation Unified Protector, OUP, in uh, April of 2011, once we were started, I needed to put a PGM on a, on a small little multiple rocket launcher in the back of a pickup truck next to a shed, and I had strike eagles with small diameter bombs. Now, now I'm supposed to be thinking at the operational and strategic level of warfare, but I knew tactically what I had, and I'm like, test those guys, because everybody was afraid, because it was like one of the first nights to drop a bomb, a NATO bomb again, you know. And But I knew the capability of the airplane, I knew the capability of the weapon, and understood the technology and said, just go put one on there, and and we did, and it made and it and it changed the whole atmosphere in the in the in the AOC that night. What would you say is your perspective on having a operator type, a fighter pilot, someone who is is tactically minded in higher leadership roles uh, of the you know two star, three star, just overall in the military? I, I think what it does is you, you've been there, done that, got the t-shirt and the coffee mug. All right. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, I, I was that ATO planner in Korea, granted never went to war, but had a plan on the shelf if we had to go to war and, and, and updated that thing all the time. So I knew how ATOs were built, right. And how they should be built. What's the right way. What's the wrong way. Fast forward, you know, um, I'm, a, I'm an 06 on the joint staff in the, in the Pentagon. I'm chief of uh, the division chief for, in uh, J-33 in uh, of the European Command Division in current ops when Operation Ally Force kicks off, right? And Operation Ally Force is, was uh, with regards to uh, Milosevic and Serbia and when the Serbs were taking out all the Kosovars, right? And now NATO is going to do their operation as chief of the UCOM division Everything is being handled over in, in Europe and through NATO. And Lieutenant General Mike Short, and God rest his soul, right? He is the CFAC. He is the three-star that's, that's doing that stuff. And I'm seeing all this stuff flow through. It's, everything's, everything's flowing through my office. Targets, all this stuff that should, that's another whole story. But I, I, I learn all from that. I watch that all take place as a colonel. Now, 12 years later, I'm Mike Short. I'm not as good as Mike Short, but, I, but you get my point. Uh, now, on the CFAC for the next NATO operation, that NATO didn't think it was ever going to have again, and had an air operation in Libya. And so, you know, the example I use, I speak, I give a whole presentation at the CFAC, uh, JFAC course down at Maxwell Air Force Base three times a year to one and two stars um, on being the CFAC for the Libya operation for OUP. And, you know, and I tell them one of the important things about being all together, you know, as a uh, as a whole CFAC or air component command, because we weren't initially, but we after a few days we were, um, was that I could have the Dutch major sitting right next to me, briefing me on the ATO that I'm signing off on, okay, um, and and I know where he's coming from. I know how it's been put together because I've been there, done that, and I've got all the experts sitting around the room. You know, from the guys flying the F-16 CJs to the the, the guys and gals that are, um, you know, the, uh, in the ISR business to the air-to-air -air refueling and, and all that stuff. And I've got, you know, my other close-in staff nearby, and I can tell them 
the importance of connecting the strategy to the task and going through the operational part, you know, and I've got to think at the operational level warfare, but yet I can, I can assess what we're trying to accomplish tactically. And the challenge, of course, always to, is, to, is to not to be back to be that tactical captain, you know, or that tactical <laughs> lieutenant general and, uh, and make sure that I keep myself up at the appropriate level. And in today's day and age, I use this expression all the time. As, as, a, as a component commander, any component commander or any component deputy and, and certain people on their staff, especially as a component commander, I've got to be able to connect strategy to task and task back to strategy in today's day and world in single digit seconds because of the flow of information, how quickly it is. So, so, under, so for me, that understanding of how, it, how, how the foundation is built at the tactical level, how do I then employ that and take that and go into the operational art? And schooling plays a part in that, right, through, through our professional military education. But the real part is the, is the experiences that you gain, right? And I'll, and I'll go back to one other story. So when I was selected for Brigadier General, and I was the wing commander of the NATO pilot training program, of the Euro-NATO Joint Jet Pilot Training Program at, at Shepard, better known as NJEP. And all of a sudden, one day I get a call from my two-star boss, uh, Major General Sandy Strandstrom at, uh, at 19th Air Force, and God rest his soul, too. And he goes, hey, Dice, are you sitting down? I'm with General Cook at Corona. And he was the four-star of AETC at the time. He says, we're talking about your next assignment. And I go, yeah. He goes, what do you think about going to Beijing and being the DAT, the defense attache? I'm like, sir, where the hell did that come from? And, and he said, General Jumper was the chief of staff of the Air Force at the time. And he said, Jumper says he wants an operator. He wants an operator. As the, at, and and the, the DAT position rotated between the services. And the Air Force hadn't had it in like 10 years. And he says he wants an operator because he wants to ensure that he doesn't want an intel. He doesn't want a pole mill guy. Nothing against them. He says... He wants to make sure that we have the right operational flavor because he envisions the problems that are going to be occurring with China are going to be in the operational level of warfare. I'm like, now I look at that, I go, holy shit, that was pretty damn smart. So anyway, that's a long answer of connecting tactical level to the operational level and, and having that importance of, um, of, the, of the experience. And with that experience, you hope there comes credibility. Too. The uh, Bender, get ready for uh, a question. You can fire off a question for the uh, defense attaché to China, but I got one last one. So uh, just like Bender and I uh, talked about, uh, or we've talked about previously on the podcast is, you know, it's, it's easy to make decisions that kind of risk yourself, you know, like hopping into planes, dropping bombs, crossing the line and, and, you know, accepting risk. I am more comfortable accepting risk for myself because I know if worst case, if I do something wrong, it's on me. When you become the CFAC, you are making decisions. You're signing off on taking lives of what we perceive to be the enemy. You know, hopefully we have the right people and Intel is good. You're risking lives of military members. How much gravity was there being the CFAC and sending people into Libya and doing things like that where you have to like, did it weigh on you a lot? Because I think a lot of that gets lost in like a tactical guy who's just like, I read the ROE, I read the spins, now I'm going to fight. Uh, how does that, how is that different once you become the CFAC? In any leadership position, and I, and Judy and I, my, my wife and I have had this conversation many times throughout the years, and especially when I became a commander the first time, and I've had the privilege to command at six different times. 
is that I'm ultimately responsible, you know? And she would go, no, you're not. I'm like, yes, I am, right? It says commander, I'm ultimately responsible. So as a CFAC for OUP, now with about 8,000 people, 260 something airplanes, uh, we had uh, 16 different countries participating with airplanes. I had another, I had 20 something different countries in my CFAC, you know, with people, some countries didn't participate in airplanes, but it did, it did weigh heavy in how we employed ourselves. Now, we were fortunate that we really didn't have anybody shooting at us, um, but still there were certain risks that I was, that I was not going to take. You know, we were going to stay above 20,000 feet as often as we could, because there were still some surface air missiles that we were concerned about. And based on the fight that we were fighting or what we were doing to protect civilians in accordance with the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1973, um, I was not willing to, to risk. I didn't, I, it, to me, it was never worth the risk of losing an airplane over Libya, okay? The F-15E, that went down. That was before my watch. I'm not blaming anybody, but you know, that, that happened. Um, and, you know, I'll tell you a little, a little side story uh, that was part of this. So we were, you know, the operation started on the 31st of March in 2011. And somewhere around early June, uh, President Sarkozy of France and Prime Minister Cameron of the UK forced attack helicopters down our throats, meaning they, they, they're like, you know, shape. Sackier, you got to take them, you got to use them because they thought that they were going to do this, they were going to do some amazing stuff. And the guys came in and, you know, and, and the first briefing I get, this one guy says, yeah, you know, when we were in Af Afghanistan, Iraq, hold on a second, we're not in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know. But when those, so we figure, and, and what, are, what are attack helicopters supposed to do? They support the ground scheme of maneuver. Yes, when we started Desert Storm, some of the first, the first strikes were attack helos, but they normally support the ground scheme maneuver. There's no ground component commander in the Libya operation, okay? It was forbidden by, by the UN to have uh, any type of fire and occupation force on the ground, and NATO wasn't going to do that. But so he forces this thing down our, down our throat. We figure out how we're going to fly anywhere from, and, and the Brits have, uh, have the Apache, and the, the French have two others that tip, they tiger for an English term, I think it's tiger or whatever, however the French say it, and another one. And we figure out how we're going to use them. And they flew exclusively at night. And the nights they were flying, and they, we were flying them off of, carry, off of uh, flat decks because there, there was no place nearby on land. It had never been done before. Not, you know, So all new stuff. But I'd, I'd go to sleep. I'd wake up. I'd look at my watch. And I go, okay, it's 0100. They were supposed to land at 1230. I didn't get a phone call. Whew. And I go back to sleep. So that, that, that uh, wrestled heavily with me. After a few weeks, uh, they, they really weren't doing anything and they finally took them back. But, you know, but that, but that, that did, that did, that did rest heavy with me because I, I didn't want to lose one of those airplanes or any of those crews. And, you know, the other thing that that wrestled heavily with uh, was just making sure that we were going to, you know, we were there to protect civilians. The mission was to protect civilians. And Admiral Sam Locklear, who was not, he was in my chain of command as the commander of Joint Force Command Naples, but in the 
in the OUP chain of command, he was not the CJTF or the Combined Joint Task Force Commander. His deputy, Lieutenant General Charlie Bouchard, was, who was a Canadian. But I would, you know, Lockley would talk to me, especially early on, regularly. And he told me at one point, he says, Ralph, you're going to have to be bold and aggressive, but you can never be reckless. And I said to myself, I thought, Admiral, what the hell does that mean? And, I, and then, and then I, and it was a good thing I said that with my inner voice, because then in my next inner voice, I went, you're a three star. You got to figure that out. And then I added relentless because after a couple of weeks, we were not relentlessly pursuing things that we should. But that sort of became our, our um, that, that became my simple but direct vision or mission statement. We got to be bold and aggressive and relentless, but we can never be reckless. So we couldn't be reckless because we never could be seen as harming, hurting the civilians we were there to protect. And so, so those, those, and, and so in that regard, those, those things did wrestle, you know, did weigh heavily with me. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is, it's easy. I mean, personally, I know I've been lost in the myopic perspective of like, Hey, I'm going out there. I'm going to find bad people. I'm going to go employ and do my job, but there's so much more going on. And when you're a CFAC, you got to actually yeah. think and, about and I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a little side story. So I don't know, about a year and a half ago, I was back at Shepherd. It was for the, um, I guess it was in 2021. So it was the 20 year anniversary of uh, 9-11. And I was, and like I said, I was the wing commander of the, the pilot training wing there. And we were a tenant wing, the host wing commander, um, at the time was Brigadier General Mike Collins, retired as Major General Mike Collins, and he had been an F-16 guy. Um, and they had both Mike and I back uh, to do a little 20-year anniversary and talk about, you know, what we did and how that and how that shaped the change of training. But in his interview, he made a very interesting statement. He's got a, he has a son who's an F-16 pilot. Um, and, and he talked about that exactly what you said, Vader. He said, he said, you know, when I was flying and everything else, yeah, I had to leave my family and everything else, but I'm responsible for myself. He says, and if, and if I would have wound up getting shot down and getting killed, okay. He says, but now when the government is making a decision and now they're sending my son into combat, I, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, and there's not clear cut, you know, and he's just, Mike's a very smart individual. It's not clear cut objectives. There's not clear cut strategy and all that stuff. He says, I looked at that completely differently. He says, you can't, you, you bet you son of bitches better not kill my son. You know, I mean, he was, it, it, it was a completely different approach than when it, than it, when it was him and he was strapping the airplane to his butt. Yeah. It's, I think people who haven't done it probably don't even understand, understand how they can be different. Cause you're like, Oh, it's the same thing, but you're like, Oh, it's so much different. You know? it, it is so much. Did different. you ever get yeah. that? Did you yeah, ever feel the pressure it? from the units? Like the, I just remember when Vader and I were there, we were just chomping at the bit. Every night we'd go up, and if I brought bombs home, I was pissed. Uh, Do you ever feel that pressure coming yeah. from the tactical side? Like, why aren't we doing more? Like, why am I wasting six hours and not hitting targets that I know are there? I know they're bad. Um, I'm ready to go. Yeah, we, we did. We did. I mean, and, uh, you know, and I would hear that come up uh, through either the grapevine or, you know, through the, uh, I, I have to say, I never had a squadron commander call me. I mean, they could have, and I would have gladly have spoken to him, but they might have spoke to Colonel Woody Yarborough, who was my CFAC director, you know. And, uh, in fact, Woody had been a one of them guy and an F-16 guy. Um, 
and but yet and and there and I did visit all the units eventually, um, and I did see the CJ guys and stuff, and they did say, hey, why aren't you know why aren't we doing more? Why aren't we doing this? And I, and I would try to explain to them how, you know, we weren't there to be. We weren't, we called them the anti-Qaddafi force. We weren't there to be their air force or be their close air support. Um, and so we, we, I, 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 I heard it, but I didn't feel overly, overly pressure where I would, where I would have had a little more pressure at times would have been, and I'm not telling stories out of, out of school, where the CJTF commander wanted me to do something that wasn't really the best use of air power. And, you know, and in that operation, I'm not bragging. I mean, we did probably 85% of the mission, right? And there was some, some stuff was done off of the, uh, by the maritime component with regard to um, boardings and regard to arms embargo. They did, they did employ some ordinance from ship to shore and that kind of thing. Um, and, and so there, if, if I felt more, any more pressure, it was because of maybe something that he wanted us to do that. I was just like, mm, I don't know about that. But and we would have we would have hard discussion about it. Um, and I talk about this all the time with the, at the Air Component Commander course. I said sometimes you just got to go general to general, admiral to general, admiral to admiral, general to admiral, and you got to put your ego aside. You got to have those hard conversations because we are talking about the treasures of our nation. And I'm not talking about airplanes and ships and guns. I'm talking about people. And you're putting them out there, and we got to make sure that we're doing it the right way. And there were times we disagree, and, and as long as it wasn't, in my mind, as long as it wasn't illegal, uh, unethical, or immoral, then you know we could have those discussions. And sometimes I'd win, and sometimes, it, yep, you're the CJ Taft commander. Got it. And we'd go do. The uh, thing too, guys. Like, oh yeah. if I can just, you know, just having learned so much, right? from great leaders and seeing leaders like him and, and just other men I've been around, the more that whether you're leading at the highest level like that, or whether you're leading a nonprofit of six people, the consistency that you have in your leadership to cast vision, make hard decision and enforce standards. Like if you're consistent in that all the time, then when you get thrust into a big deal like that, your consistency pays off. And as long as you're casting that vision and you're showing everybody that you're going to enforce the standard and make the hard decision when you have to, hopefully that then trickles down, right? If the commander is consistent in that, then that goes down to the next guy who goes down to the next guy who ends up with the guy who's butts in the airplane. And that sort of vision is cast. And then that's a, that's a culture building, right? To where then maybe it doesn't bubble up. Why aren't we bombing the shit out of these guys? Like, no, because the vision has been cast. Here's what we're doing. Yeah. And I think some of that is, is tough because there's so many layers. I mean, when you think about how far away the CFAC and captain, you know, Vader is out there flying planes, like there, you know, where, where, where were you stationed? You're not in Libya. Where were you? Yeah. You well, were, Dad, oh, you're yeah. miles, thousands of miles yeah. away, right? Run it. Where were you commanding that no fly zone? Oh, where was I? Yeah, where I were you? I was in Poggio, Renatico, Italy. So up uh, yeah. about an hour drive north of Bologna. Pretty far removed from the, quote, battlefield. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but this everybody that, right? was. I mean, yeah. we had jets flying out of yeah. Italy. We had jets flying out all, all over the yeah. place. So, yeah, it's just, it's one of those where, like, I agree. Like, having a solid top-down direction, because sometimes you don't have that and it's even worse. Uh, but I think it's, it is a, 
it is a challenge. You know, people have asked me like, hey, how is it different between your first deployment and second deployment? And it's like, even though there may be a different administration, it may, it may not get down to the end user just because there's so many layers. How much, how much political pressure or, you know, senators, you know, congressmen, stuff like that, did you, did you experience when you were in that position or did you, were you insulated from that in some way? I think I was, I was very, very fortunate that I didn't really have that much of that at all. Uh, you know, I, and, but I, and I, again, I talk about this when I do my presentation at the CFAC course, I have this one slide that I put up and it's got all, it's got the flags of the, the NATO countries that participated with airplanes, you know, and, and I talk about war fighting as an alliance. And there were some of those countries their governments had made the decision that they were not going to drop bombs, right? They were not going to do offensive counter air, right? And they would only fly defensive counter air. And for those that don't know, they were going to fly combat air patrols. They were going to escort other airplanes. They would make sure that the tanker tracks were safe, that, that kind of thing. They weren't going to drop any bombs. And, and I needed every bomb dropper that I, that I could get my hands on it, you know, because I could never darken the skies over Libya with NATO air power, right? And we probably never had any more than a four ship of bomb droppers over the country at any one time. But it wasn't my job to change the opinion of those countries. I had to understand and I had to respect the political decision that those countries were making. And then it was incumbent upon us as the overall CFAC organization in that Air Operations Center to figure out how to best use the capabilities that those countries were given us. You know, I had a, one of their air chiefs in my office in June. So we're three months into the operation. Um, European is European air chief. And uh, he was really frustrated. He goes, Ralph, he says, I wish my guys and gals were dropping bombs. He says, I look at some of my sister countries and they're flying the F-16. So it kind of narrows it down. And he says, and they're dropping bombs and 100% of, Country X's fighter pilots are getting com combat time and experience dropping bombs, and not a single one of my folks are. And I said to him, I said, Jack, look, I said, you know, you guys got these brand new targeting pods on the airplanes. Um, we're employing you in a non-traditional ISR mode. We're coming up with new and innovative ways. You know, we're keeping you, we're, we're not going to do anything to get you in trouble with your parliament, right? And I said, but, and I need you guys flying defensive counter air and doing these other things because I don't have the assets. So, so. I didn't have the political pressure, but I had to understand that. And that, that's part of my job at a, as that senior leader, right? And some within my staff. I also was very fortunate. And again, if Lieutenant General Mike Short was still alive, he'd tell you a different story. The, the sack year for me, Admiral Stavridis, was completely hands-off with me. I saw him late March in Izmir before I left, and then I saw him in early April in uh, Poggio Renatico, and the next time I talked to him was two, was seven, almost seven months later, two days before the operation ended, when he called to say congratulations. He never talked to me, which was great. Shit hot. Let yeah. me be, right? <laughs> but Mike Short, Lieutenant General Mike Short, his story would be completely different uh, and with uh, with General Wes Clark as the SACUR at the time. Completely, and, it's, and that's all, it was all personality dependent. So... Bender, what do you got? I just think that's a – I mean, I knew this even as a young woman, but it's just become more apparent the, the longer I've been in. But obviously the decisions that are going on at higher levels are incredibly complex. There's so many players involved. I mean, the inputs that go into the CFAC, so to speak, uh, I mean, it's just there's so many things that, that are going in that kind of 
add those pressures that we're kind of talking about. So, I mean, I respect that position. It's, it's got to be difficult. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how we'll get into China, I think, at some point soon. But in, when we talk about the modern fight in the Indo-PACOM, we talk about the CFAC. Uh, like in our briefs, we say, hey, you're going to get the commander's intent from the CFAC, and then you're not going to hear another word for two months or whatever. You know, like that's just kind of the, the way we're trying to change our mindset. And that is very different than the way combat has been run in the past 20 years. So what do you think? Are we prepared for that kind of a fight? Is our, when you go to that course to teach, are they talking about that kind of stuff? Or, you know, what are, what are the high level discussions going on as far as getting into a fight like that, where you got to let your forces kind of follow your intent and then you got to trust that they're going to do their job. Yeah, yeah that's really good, Bender. Um, and, you know, I'll answer the last one first. So two, two times ago, I, I last spoke in uh, February and then it was last I don't know, was it October or November? I was down there. And we, no kidding, went down the um, distributive, let me make sure I'm saying it right, distributive operations rabbit hole for about 20 minutes um, with, with not a lot of input from me. And and this was, this, I don't know, 18 to 20 people around the table, two senior mentors, two retired, you know, three stars, guys like me. Um, and that class had, uh, an Aussie, a Brit, a Canadian, a German, and another two or three, you know, out, either an ally, a partner, or a friend, or a friend. And there's difference between all three of those levels, anyway. And and that was a big item of discussion. You know, the, you're going to get the commander's intent, and then and then what happens if you don't hear jack shit, <laughs> right? And you're uh, and and you're on your own. You know, how do you how do you do all that? How do you carry through all that? Because uh, and what had spurred that on was um, my, I, I talked a little bit about a concern about having too much reach back capability and the importance of being together, you know, the importance of me as the CFAC being there with that ATO planner, not to micromanage, but to help connect the dots. But, you know, and we got into the discussion about, well, what happens, you know, in a China fight when they take away all those comms, you know, and, and now you, you're left with nothing but a, a target list, you know, how do you go about doing those things and still stay within the commander's intent? So those discussions are happening and I, and I, and they're happening. I think more and more and more, I was fortunate uh, about a month or so ago, uh, about once a year, the, the chief, and in this case, uh, general Brown, and I can call him CQ cause I knew him before he was a four star, uh, but, but CQ, uh, and, and he gets us retired guys on for about a three hour, uh, zoom, you know, session or whatever. And of course, that was one of the main items of discussion, you know, coming out of coming out of the A3. So uh, it does concern me uh, because, like you said, over the last 20 plus years, we've only known uh, we've only known air supremacy. Right. And, and when I use the word air supremacy, I just don't mean tactically in the air. I mean, all the way up and down that whole chain, you know, comms not being, you know, and being able to being able to talk to people. I mean, I had that I was able to talk to my and the only time I couldn't talk to them our folks, I don't mean the guy in the airplane or the gal in the airplane, but, you know, if a, somebody would be if the stupid SATCOM went down, you know, or something like that. Um, but so it does, it, it does concern me when, when we have to be able to do something like that. But hopefully, though, we, too, have extremely good capabilities to make whoever the adversary is be in that same ballpark. And we still 
we still are way better at thinking on our own and acting on our own, meaning the tactical guys and the gals in the cockpit like you two, uh, better than anybody else. And that that um, makes me feel a little bit more at ease. Me too. <laughs> ben, no, you got another one? Have, I, yeah, I don't. I don't. Yeah, I'm. I'm interested to see how, how we kind of readjust things. I mean, it's a fascinating conversation to have about that. But I think you're right. I think who can when we talk about C two, you know, it's even at the best of times, C two it doesn't function super well. Uh, so in a in a degraded no. operation, you know, whose is going to function better, ours or theirs? Basically, is the question. And I, I think you're right. I think yeah. the the good thing about like I talked about earlier, we'd go on our missions if we brought bombs back, we'd be angry. And that's, that's what you, you want that culture in your operators. Obviously, you want them to be like leaning forward, trying to be autonomous, like looking for their targets, uh, trying to make those decisions on their own. Obviously, you have the leash, so you pull them back when it's not appropriate. Um, so it's good that over the 20 years, even though we've had air supremacy, like you said, um, we still have that culture, I think, of, you know, of like leaning forward, um, being ready to make the decision in my cockpit with my foreship, uh, that kind of thing. So hopefully that, that pays dividends as we go forward. Yeah, and we've got to, we've got to, we've got to keep instilling that and breeding it in our, in our forces across all the services to be able to make those independent decisions because, you know, we're going to be, we're going to be challenged in ways, shapes, and forms that we've never, that we haven't seen. Um, especially over the last 20 something years, actually really 30 years now. So. Well, and that's, you know, I, I agree. I think our end users and our operators are, are definitely there. I think I, I don't, I don't envy being in the CFAC, you know, their seat when they have to truly, because right now of everybody who's never been in a chaos, and I honestly have actually never been in a, the true, like a true chaos, but it's, it's information overload is what I've been told. There's screens, there's a constant steady flow of information of everywhere. And any targets we're hitting, we've probably soaked them in information, surveillance, and reconnaissance for a period of time prior to dropping on them. And so now having to make all these decisions, but in an information vacuum, that's that's probably one of the more challenging things. What would you well, say, sir? And, and let me tell you, when I say, you know, we, we call ourselves a, a chaos. For, for unified protector. Let me tell you, it is nothing. It was nothing like Al Udeed. Nothing. I mean, oh, yeah. you talk about. We didn't have much. We didn't have much of anything. Uh, we had one one video feed, you know. So, and I, I got to visit uh, the Kayak um, after OUP because I was asked to go over and give a presentation with the Guitaris um, for the Guitaris because they participated as one of the partner nations. And I was in that, I was in the chaos, like, holy shit, this is the freaking Taj Mahal. We were in porta cabins, you know, um, and they're the same ones that they used in LA Force and stuff. So anyway, yeah, it, agree. That's awesome. Well, agree. the, uh, we're, we're running out of time here, but, uh, sir, so if you have kind of one last kind of flying wait, 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 story wait. or one of, oh, well, hold on. <laughs> We'll get to the last story. I want to ask about your right. time in in China as the as All the right. uh, were you the the air liaison. The, the, it was called the DAT, the defense okay, attaché. So attache. I was I was the head head attaché. Yeah, we had an office of about twenty four of us, 
Uh, Twelve of us were out of shades, including myself, and uh, and everybody in the office basically, you know, worked for me. And I had some NCOs, I had some uh, civilians, um, and such. Okay, so. so my question is: so from that perspective, like a CFAX perspective or a defense attaché's perspective, like what should be, what are we worrying about? What are the big items as far as conflict with China that we should be thinking about? What did you learn? I guess. Well. Um, yeah. So, you know, one of the things that, uh, so when I was there and I was there from the end of 04 to the middle of 07, so about two and a half years. So this is, bef we left a year before the Olympics were hosted in 08. Um, and, you know, at, at that time, the Chinese had started putting double digit percent increases into their defense budget, 13, 15, 17%. Um, some of their officers were receiving 100% pay raises. Now, they weren't making but $5,000 a year, you know, before that, okay? And, and I'm, I'm talking, you know, one-star, someone equivalent to my ranking grade. But anyway, um, and, and as they were doing that, and the things that we, meaning the attache community there, there was about 80 countries represented, um, big countries, little countries, especially the smaller countries in Southeast Asia. And you can just, you can just rattle them all on off, you know. The things that we all worried about then have all come to fruition and then some, okay? Building bases in the Spratly Islands, you know, building bases on atolls, you know, all that has occurred. Um, the increases in their various types of technology, especially in the, in the cyber, this, the constant, the continual stealing of stuff. Um, so what continues to concern me is, you know, that closing of the gap, right? We've always, we've talked about that a lot. We, meaning the U.S., we, how we've always maintained this technological advantage, but that technological advantage has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller as we have not increased our defense budgets and, and, uh, and done other things um, at the same kind of a rate. Um, I still think that, you know, we have, uh, we have uh, techno technological means that are, that are better. Um, I still think that our training is better, but everybody looks at us and wants to be like us, so they want to copy us. Um, and the more they figure that stuff out, then those other gaps, those other advantages that we have continue to get small and small. So those are the things that really concern, that concern me. And I, and I used this expression before I left China and I had this discussion with the deputy chief of mission, who's the number two, two person in the embassy overall. And we kind of disagreed a little bit. And I said, you know, I don't think we're too far away from when the PLA would love to bloody our nose. Not getting a big shootout fight, right? They don't want that either because it's going to, it hurts everybody's economy. But yet they're going to go take Taiwan when they think they're ready to go take Taiwan, um, as scary as that is. But there might be something before that where they're going to want to bloody our nose. Now, did they stick their finger in our eye with that stupid ass balloon? Yeah, they certainly did. Um, but I shouldn't say, you know, it wasn't stupid ass, but I mean, you know, it, it certainly got a lot of attention and, and stuff. So anyway... Bender, I hope that answers the question, but I mean, it was just that, that concern. So now if, imagine, so the things that I was worried about in 2004 to 2007, the dad who's there now, Tom Hendershot, 
who was a Navy lieutenant commander when I was there. Now he's a freaking rear admiral. You know, he's a one star. Um, I'd be, I'd be, we'd love to have that same conversation with Tom and, and say, okay, you know, wh what's your next level of worry? You know, that, that to me would be interesting to get somebody who's recently out of there or somebody else who's in a, in a policy place in OSD or something like that and say, okay, what are the, re what are the things that you're really worried about now? And, but I bet you some of them are still going to be the same. Yeah, it's interesting. How was the, uh, it seems like everybody talks about that their surveillance of their own people is, is pretty uh, invasive. Uh, how would you say as someone uh, from the military of another country, how did you, f <laughs> were you surveilled, do you believe? How over was it? Oh, there's absolutely no question. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> you know? They got, they got video on all of us, but I was over there yeah. vacationing. Like, yeah. we're on file. Yeah. You know, there was a reason I bent over even further when I got out of the shower every day, you know? <laughs> but, yeah, no, we, we knew uh, we knew we were surveilled audio. Uh, we, we felt that our house, uh, audio, and there was probably video. Uh, everything, everything and anything was monitored. So, you know, if Judy and I wanted to have a serious discussion, we had, there were certain things that we had to go, that we did to make sure that we could do that. Um, and you know, our, our car had to go through inspection when it got there and had to go through inspection, you know, when it left and for those who <laughs> don't see the video, I, inspection was in quotes. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it, it, but we, we went through training to, to learn how to operate in that kind of an environment, um, because you still got to be able to operate and you still got to be able to do things, but you've got to, you can't be dumb about it, about it either. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you one little story, funny story about this. Hopefully it, do, it doesn't take us too far over, but people like stories. And I love getting points across by telling stories. I learned it from my dad, from Brian's grandfather. So we had uh, one Friday evening. It was a rare Friday evening. We didn't have an event out. We're, we're at our house. So we didn't, we didn't live on the embassy grounds. The ambassadors only lived on embassy grounds. So we're in a rental, sort of a big ass townhouse. Um, there's other internationals around there. There's Chinese people. It's only, but anyway. So I'm upstairs on our desktop computer. This is 2005, six time period. And I don't, and I, and I think I'm like probably checking ESPN or scores or doing something like that. I'm not doing anything really productive. And the icons are moving around and I can't do shit on the computer, right? So I, I'm, I'm getting pissed and I go, quit screwing around with my computer. Turn the computer off. Go downstairs, you know, I'd probably go get a beverage. Judy and I, you know, we do whatever, hanging out. Next morning, Saturday morning, we had a, we get up and uh, we get a little light breakfast. And we go to the gym right there in the facility we're at. We have a little nice workout facility. Doorbell rings, right? So I go to the front door. Two Chinese guys in their broken English, they go, we're here to fix your computer. <laughs> <laughs> I go, I, said, I look at them and I go. Shit you are. I, yeah. I look at them, I go, Swoba. So, and saying it that tone is like, uh, it's like, get out of here. But, you know, throwing a couple of, you know, Zwoba. And they look at me and I say, Zwoba. And I'm like, and I said, don't ever freaking come back. Um, and I never had a problem with my computer again. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. We, no had, we, had, we had one of the first dinners we had, we had a gas leak, right? And same knucklehead show up, you know, with a gas leak. Um, and they were, it probably was... The bugs won't work. I'll, I'll tell you one other story. I'll make this one quick. Enough. Oh, yeah. So, no, so, so, so uh, 
uh, uh, Rumsfeld has come, comes for a visit, right? He's a SecDef at the time. And his uh, military aide is Vice Admiral Jim Stavridis, who eventually becomes a four-star, right? And becomes a Sackier. So this is the first time I meet, I meet Admiral Stavridis vice, uh, as a Vice Admiral. So we get Rumsfeld up to his room. He's in a local hotel, right? They got the whole floor above, floor below, you know. And the shot, and 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 in those situations, the host nation is re responsible for perimeter security, rightfully so. He's got his he's got his own guys and that kind of stuff. And so Rumsfeld's in his room. Stavridis and I are standing outside his door. We're looking out this window, looking at, towards South Beijing, and I'm pointing out stuff to him. The next thing I know, one of the Chinese security guy comes up, and he has this little round looks like a flashlight right and he puts it up against a window jam and the thing goes eh! and then takes it away and i look up and there is a microphone so you could see what was happening somebody goes hey you're over there by the window talking we don't hear anything go make sure that thing is active <laughs> and i look at him i said see i told you you know and those safes in your room they're not safe uh, but yeah anyway, that's that's it i believe that's it. crazy yeah, yeah. But, it's, but that's what happens you know, and I yeah. and like when our his, when his brother Ralph, you know, who, who we're at when he came to China first to visit and then stayed, you know, I sat him down. I said, Ralph, look, they know you're my son. You're they know you're our son. You could be they could throw some shit at you. You could be tempted with women, drinks. You can't you can't take any of that, you know. Make sure you're and make sure you're always with somebody. We were never, we were never, Judy and I were never worried about our individual security because I think if some pickpocket guy had jumped out of the shadows to try to steal her purse, some other guy would have jumped out of the shadows, would have probably beat the crap out of him. Yeah. <laughs> um, because they didn't want anything to happen to us, you know, on their watch, but they were also going to watch us closely. And if they could embarrass us, they would embarrass us. But. And we did negotiate some 10 quiet beers at a bar one night. <laughs> yeah. But that was just. <laughs> We used our American privilege on that one because we thought we could get more Americans into the bar because they had some Americans already in there. <laughs> I wasn't there. Yeah. I heard that story. You were yeah. there. Last that night, all is free game. You know, yeah. it's fine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and we got some sweet DVDs. I mean, you know, pretty much what did you need? You were able Before to pick the up on the streets release, of Beijing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's, that happens in a lot of uh, overseas assignments. You know, we, yeah. I think we've all experienced that. That. Well, Sorry. awesome. Well, Bender, you got anything before we get going? No, I just want to say thank you for coming on and, yeah. and uh, talking to us. I know we're kind of knuckleheads, and so we ask questions that maybe aren't as good as other people <laughs> could, but we appreciate no. you taking the time to do it. You're welcome. You're, you're welcome. Anytime. I, I really, I, you can tell, I want to really enjoy this, and um, what you guys are doing is real important. You know, we got we to keep, keep getting the information out there and talking to the right people. Um, and stuff. So thanks for doing this. And thanks for what you guys continue to do in serving. I mean, it's, um, it doesn't, it's hard, um, but that's okay. You know, it, it does, uh, it's very important to our nation and to all those that are around you too. Well, thank you. We appreciate it, sir. And we, uh, we enjoy it. And we, when, again, thank you for, uh, for joining us. We've had fun, uh, learning from you. And, uh, so thank you. And Brian, thanks for setting all this up because, uh, it was fun being on your, uh, podcast, pick up the six. Yeah. And, uh, so anything, any parting shots, Brian, before we get going? No, I mean, I would just say, if you want to hear Vader on the other side, right. Getting a lot of questions asked to him. Uh, which we did it was recently episode 134 pick up the six go to pick up the six.com or on spotify 
iTunes, all those places you listen to podcasts, sharing stories about service, purpose, and impact. We had an awesome conversation. You had a killer mustache at the time. Yeah. Pissed, it's gone. So, but yeah. I'd End say of bring the that thing back. Yeah, yeah the uh, well, um, I came back home and the wife was like, "All right, that's gotta go." It is Mark, so, so it's, it's on its way back now. I assume. Yeah. That's your. Oh no, I got the. Uh, we're gonna sit this one out. So <laughs> next March, well, <laughs> but uh, but thank you both so much, and uh, everybody, thank you. Remember, like, subscribe, share, all that fun stuff for the uh, Kodiak Shack podcast. Info at kodiakshack.com. Email us there, and then kodiakshack.com is our website. Uh, gentlemen, thank you again. And sir, uh, we really do appreciate it. It's been awesome. My pleasure. Thanks guys. Out here. See ya.